Welcome to Biopods, where we dig into research stories and the people behind them. Each episode, we'll meet a researcher from the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Edinburgh to learn more about their work. I'm Verity. And I'm Tyke. This week, we're talking to Dr. Lisa Heron, a postdoctoral scientist working at the Rosman Institute. Lisa is using genetic engineering to make transgenic chickens who lay eggs filled with drugs. Genetic engineering is a set of technologies that lets you change the genetic makeup of cells. You can transfer genes from one species to another to try and make improved or novel organisms. That's called transgenics. One example in the news recently is golden rice, which contains daffodil genes so it can synthesise beta-carotene, a vitamin A precursor. For countries where rice is the staple food, this could really help with avoiding blindness and other health issues caused by vitamin A deficiency. Scientists make transgenic organisms by isolating a gene from one species, like daffodils, and introducing it into another, like rice. This is done using things like DNA microinjection or electroporation. But in this paper, they use a virus called lentivirus. The new gene, called a transgene, is packaged inside the lentivirus, and when the virus infects the host cell, it inserts a copy of the gene into the host genome. In animals, scientists put the transgene in a fertilised egg so that every cell in that organism will express the transgene. It will also get passed down to the animal's children. This ensures you don't need to make a new transgenic animal every time you need one because you can just let the animals mate as normal. So why would scientists want to make a transgenic animal in the first place? One reason is to use the animal to make molecules that are hard to make in the lab, like proteins. This is exactly what our guest today is doing. She works in the field of protein therapeutics, which is the use of proteins as drugs. Most drugs are called small molecule drugs. Unsurprisingly, these are compounds that are very small, less than 900 Daltons to be precise, which is less than a fifth of a protein like insulin, which is already pretty tiny as far as proteins go. This gives them really useful properties for making drugs, because they can get inside the cell and be taken orally as they can cross the intestinal lining. If small molecule drugs are so great, why do we need to bother with proteins? Well, proteins are the workhorse of the body. They build and repair tissues, control your immune system, and regulate most of your vital processes. Sometimes these proteins don't get made properly, or at all, so it's super useful to be able to replace them with correct ones. A good example of this, which Lisa actually talks about, is insulin, which in type 1 diabetics is not made. One of the main classes of protein therapeutics is antibodies. In nature, antibodies form part of the vertebrate immune system, but in pharmaceuticals and in the lab, They're really useful because they each bind specifically to a partner molecule, called an antigen. Antibodies can be used to inhibit molecules that you want to stop reaching their intended targets, like inflammatory signals in Crohn's disease, or in the lab to find where specific proteins are inside cells. To learn more about protein therapeutics, we're going to hand over to Christian, who went out to the Rosman Institute to talk to Lisa about her work. Hello, welcome. I'm Christian Donohoe. I'm sitting here with uh, Dr. Lisa Heron. Uh, Welcome to Biopod. Thank you for sitting down with us. Thank you. So, just to begin with, uh, why did you choose to work on this project? So, where did this project come from? Well, the background of the project is actually uh, decades old. Um, When protein therapeutics first became uh, a viable treatment option, um, people wanted to make them as inexpensively as possible because it is very, very expensive to make protein. So, the first real uh, major protein therapeutic was insulin which had to be extracted from the pancreas of animals. Uh, and that had a whole host of problems such as, uh, well, A, cruel to animals. Um, B, uh, was potentially very dangerous to have, you know, any kind of um, 
infections from those animals. So you, you know, you can never quite tell how safe that product would be. Um, it would be very variable. And you also had the problem of it not being compatible with the human system because the protein is different species. Which animals would you use that in that situation, or what would they use? Um, I believe it was from pigs and cows, but I'm not 100% sure on the history of that. Um, But once we were able to do genetic engineering, we found that we could make insulin in bacteria. And all of the insulin that is now on the market comes from either bacteria or from uh, mammalian cells. Okay. Um, The protein itself is quite small and easy to make so you can make it in bacteria and then people have added modifications over time Um, but then realize okay well that works really well Um, what other proteins can we make in this way and so you had things like growth hormones um, and then the proteins started getting more and more complex larger so now we have a lot of proteins called monoclonal antibodies which um, are very large have a very complex structure and therefore have to be made in mammalian cells which are the most sensitive and the most expensive to maintain. And that whole process means that even when those drugs go the equivalent of generic, which is called a biosimilar, because the manufacturing process remains expensive, you, they don't drop in price in the same way. So a small molecule drug might go from thousands of pounds for a pill to pennies for a pill. A protein therapeutic will maybe go down 30 to 50% if you're really lucky. Is that due to how you have to extract it or how you have to produce the cells in the first place to then produce these? Well, unlike with small molecules, which you can synthesize in the lab, um, these have to have a biological system to make them. And especially the more complex ones that have modifications added on after they're created or have special folding Um, they can't be made in bacteria, which are very cheap and easy to grow. Mammalian cells are very sensitive, so the whole thing has to be in an aseptic environment. Um, So that is in itself very expensive to keep an entire factory free of bacteria. Um, The media that they have to grow in is very specialized and is itself very expensive to, to maintain. And also because it's a biological product, there will be natural variation in it. So unlike where you can tightly control a synthetic process, you can't do that in a biological system. So there's a lot more analytics you have to do to prove that every batch you're making is exactly the same. So it's hard to keep it to standard and make everything's going at the same quality. Yeah, so it's a much more involved process, which makes the whole manufacturing more expensive. Um, so the, what people were wanting to do a long time ago, as soon as we could make transgenic animals, the thought was, well, there are animals that make proteins already in large quantities in easily accessible formats like milk and eggs. Yeah. So can we genetically modify those animals to produce those proteins in what they're already making? Um, it took a long time. Um, genetically modifying large animals is not... Uh, particularly straightforward, especially chickens. Um, So most mammals are genetically modified by injecting the embryo when it's a single cell. Um, A chick embryo is on a giant egg yolk, so it's not really very accessible. Uh, So if you want to inject something into a freshly laid egg, it's already 60,000 cells at that point, so a lot more complex. Quite large. Uh, let's quickly focus on uh, gene-modifying animals in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, here at the Rosslyn Institute, you've got quite a storied history of, of genetically modifying animals. A classic one, Dolly the Sheep. Uh, that's a story well known. Uh, but when looking at this particular for the production of this drug, why chickens? What have you got against chickens? Yeah. <laughs> Nothing against chickens. In fact, I think they're fabulous. Um, 
the th- so Dolly was not genetically modified. Do- Dolly was just a clone, but the, her entire reason for being that that whole project was in order to facilitate genetic modification. Um, you could genetically modify an animal, but then the germline transmission was very very poor in the sheep, and so by cloning. So that means that uh, you can breed on the generations instead of having to make a new transgenic every time. So that the transgene expressed in the germline, so in the germ cells, the egg or the sperm. Um, And if you had to make a new transgenic every single time, A, it's going to be a different product. It's going to be constantly changing. And that's get really expensive. So what you want to do is make the transgenic once and then... We'll be able to breed it out. So, like when you have bacteria, yeah. you create one, you modify one bacteria, yes. replicate. But in terms of yeah. actual animal replicating itself, yeah. So there were sheep made, made transgenic, and then instead of breeding them on, the cloning was going to be the way to to make drive them forward. The reason we wanted to do chickens is chickens um, lay about three hundred eggs a year in the in modern layer lines. Um, they're a lot cheaper and easier to maintain than uh, milk-producing animals. Um, From a single cockerel, you can get thousands of offspring very, very quickly. Um, And the evolutionary distance between birds and mammals means that you can make proteins in the chicken that uh, you maybe couldn't make in a mammal because it it would have an effect on the health of that animal. In the chicken, we can make human proteins, or certain human proteins or other species proteins, um, and the chicken doesn't notice at all. As far as it's concerned, it's just laying its normal egg. Um, so that allows us to make things that are maybe would be toxic to mammalian cell or um, which would have some biological effect uh, in, in a mammal that you don't want to um, want to happen in its milk. Was that seen previously then? Uh, so was there previous experiments with other type animals and they were seeing that what they were producing was even interacting with the animals themselves? Yeah, so there have been cases where they tried to make something like EPO, the erythropoietin in a rabbit, and that had leakage back into the animal system and it had a massive overgrowth of red blood cells. So you obviously don't want that. That's not good for the animal. So it's an animal welfare issue as much as anything. Um, The chicken also has some interesting biochemical properties, which means that um, it's post-translational modifications, i.e. the sugars that get added to the protein um, after it's been expressed and folded. For some proteins, these are essential for their activity. Um, different species have different patterns of these sugars. And if you, A, have the wrong ones, that can cause an allergic reaction. And B, if you don't have the right ones, it can reduce the activity or even make it a dead protein, essentially. Um, Chickens, oddly enough, have a more similar pattern of these sugars to humans and have fewer of the kind of allergic type um, sugars than, for instance, rodents, which uh, rodent cells are the main ones that are used to make these antibodies in industry. Um, And also the chemical environment in the egg is very conducive to certain bond formations that, again, some proteins require and can be tricky to do in cell culture. So so a little bioreactor inside the egg. Essentially, yeah. And the the nice thing about chickens as well is, you know, unlike with milking, where you have to go in and physically milk the cows or the goats or whatever, and there's, uh, you know, interaction involved there that you know, can potentially be harmful depending on the method you use or you know requires a lot of labor with the chickens they're laying the eggs you go in you pick them up and you leave okay <laughs> so it's a lot less direct um 
interaction with the animal to acquire the protein. You mentioned cows and goats. Uh, so have this, has the system been producing uh, these proteins in cow's milk or goat's milk? Yep, there are several research projects that have done this. There is an actual therapeutic on the market from goat's milk. It was the first one from a transgenic animal. Okay. There's also one on the market from uh, the milk of transgenic rabbits, and I have no idea how they milk rabbits, rabbits so milk. don't ask. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, and I think there have been multiple kind of milk-producing animals made, and in fact, at Rosa, or rather at PPL Therapeutics, which was the spin-out or the company that was involved in the jelly the sheep research to make transgenics. They made it in sheep as well. So you get involved in the ethics of the chickens. How are the chickens you work with when you modify them? How are they treated? How are they kept? And does that affect into how you plan your research as well? Absolutely. So all animal research in Europe and in the UK um, is very strictly regulated. In the UK, we have the Home Office, um, very strict regulations and rules about how we, we keep the chickens, you know, how many can be in a pen, you know, all, all sorts of uh, things of, you know, right down to how many times can we take a blood sample. You know, you have to explain every single procedure that you do to the, the birds. Um, they live in very large pens with a nice sawdust cover. They have environmental enrichment. Um, they live in family groups, so you'll have natural mating going on, um, and they, you know, exhibit natural behaviors everything has to go through an ethics board and everything has to be approved by the home office so we have to show that you know we have to say how much we think the animal might suffer the more the potential of suffering the more the justification has to be um, in this case with all of these animals it's it's very mild um the if we were to express a protein and it, we could see that it was affecting the chicken biologically, the experiment would stop and we would not make that protein. Is it affecting the um, egg at all? Uh, is it then preventing an egg from developing? Uh, no. So the we have you know we breed these birds from the hens um, as well as from the cockerels. So you'll have an embryo growing in the egg that has that protein. It has no effect on that chick. Um, so we're we're really really serious about the. Um, the ethical issues around animal experimentation and we only do it because we think you know we can get good expression we keep the minimum number of chickens that we need for uh, the work that we're doing um, and they live in very very high quality conditions this isn't like a battery farm sort of environment so i'm not going to see these chickens in nando's you're definitely not so that's a really important point actually um, all experimental animals must stay out of the food chain they have special routes for disposal of all of the materials, um, and you are never going to see them on your supermarket shelves. Absolutely, not even the eggs. Yeah. They're completely separate from the food chain. Uh, so, quickly going back to uh, uh, having eggs develop with the protein inside. If you extract that protein from the egg, would that destroy the, the egg itself when you're extracting the protein? Yeah. So we, so the eggs that we extract the protein from are generally not fertile eggs. We're not, we're not growing an embryo in the same egg. We take, get, receive the eggs. Um, we crack them, we separate out the yolk, and we take that egg white and process it, um, run it through a process called chromatography, which separates proteins by their various characteristics, whether size, charge, etc. Um, and, you know, that's, that's the whole egg used. Um, and we can scale that up or down, you know, from a single egg, from even part of an egg, to... Um, dozens or hundreds of eggs if we if we need to and what sort of yield are we looking at here i remember you gave a presentation a few years ago where it should about be three milligrams or around that amount uh, how has it improved since then 
So our best expressing line we get about um, in homozygotes, which means that they have two copies of the gene, uh, we get about three grams per liter of protein, uh, 1.5 grams per liter in um, the heterozygotes, so one copy of the gene. Uh, but it, the range varies depending on the protein and, and which line. So these are all lines that were created at the Rosalind Institute over time with incremental improvements being made in all of the genetics of the transgene. Um, so the best one is that, that high level of expression, which is uh, essentially economically viable. Like it's, it's relevant to the um, industrial quantities that get made. Um, and unlike with cell lines, which have kind of a, you know, they start off with low expression, they reach a peak and then they kind of tail off and then you have to regenerate them. With a chicken, a laying hen will basically lay approximately the same amount of protein throughout its laying life. So there'll be little daily variations, but overall you get about that level every time. Is it getting a high level consistency again compared to the milking of the cows or the yeah, I'm not as familiar with the kind of yields that they get in the milk. The one big difference between egg white and milk is that egg white is a relatively easy one to purify from. It's an aqueous environment. There's only about a dozen proteins. It's got almost no lipid, whereas milk is a high lipid. Um, it's an emulsion. It's it's trickier to purify from. Okay, so it's like a tougher mixture, essentially. Yeah. Okay, so we've spoken a lot about the proteins you can extract from these eggs uh, and production to it. What are we looking for? So what are we looking to extract and why And why is this better than the chemical processed babies? The, the proteins are basically, we, we take a transgene, we used a lentivirus, a de well, a replication defective lentivirus. Um, so this is a virus that can go in and insert the gene into the chicken's DNA but it can't replicate itself, so it doesn't cause any disease. Right. Um, and from then on, we can breed from the birds that have the, the transgene insertion. Usually what would happen is you'd get a similar kind of transgene insertion, but into a cell, so either into bacteria or into mammalian cells. Um, and the you can't chemically synthesize proteins. Basically. Um, sorry, I forgot where the question sorry. started. Uh, I was asking... Uh, <laughs> Which proteins? So, like, what? Which proteins right, okay. are particular? Yeah. Have we looked at, especially yeah. in the? So recently, there was a paper which came out from the Rosen Institute, which got a lot of media attention. Let's say, and I was hoping to ask you about what that, what proteins that paper specifically focused on, yeah. and why it did. Yeah. So the the proteins in that paper were human interferon alpha two A. So this is a protein that's part of the immune system. And it's largely an antiviral, but it also has some anti-cancer properties as well. It's already on the market. This is a, a very old protein um, that's been used for treating hepatitis and certain cancers. Um, and it was kind of used as a proof of concept to show, can we make a protein like that um, that is clinically relevant? And I think the original idea was that it could potentially develop as a biosimilar, which is the generic version of these. Um, because it was already off patent. Uh, and what we found is that that protein was purifiable and highly biologically active um, coming out of the eggs. The other two proteins that we made were the human and pig versions of colony stimulating factor one or macrophage colony stimulating factor, which uh, is again part of the immune system. It's the protein that um, causes differentiation of macrophages in the immune system. 
Um, but it also has some interesting potential for regenerative medicine. Um, and so we were interested in making that first to see, okay, can we make this particular type of molecule? So this molecule is a disulfide bonded dimer. That means that it requires two copies stuck together via, via, via disulfide bonds um, in order to be active. So we wanted to see, can we make a disulfide bonded dimer protein? Um, they also have an FC tag. So that's a tag, um, of a chunk of protein that comes from antibodies which binds to certain receptors in the cells to increase the activity. It also makes the molecule larger, so it doesn't get cleared by the kidneys as quickly. Okay. Um, so these three proteins are all involved in the immune system, but also have medicinal properties that we wanted to investigate. Um, and with CSF1 in particular, you know, it has the potential to be a novel therapeutic. Um, and so that was something that, you know, can we get in right on the ground floor, making this in the chickens, and developing it as a therapeutic for animal health and potentially human health in the future. Okay. Uh, one thing you mentioned also at the beginning there, uh, so you made human and pig proteins in yep. that. Did you test the system initially by uh, looking at creating animal proteins, testing them on animals, and then moving on to the humans? We were initially looking at the pig version, in fact, um, to see whether it had potential applications in animal health and production. Um, so, you know, antibiotic resistance is a big uh, problem yeah. in, in agriculture. Uh, well, globally in, in general. And one of the things that we want to see is, can we give CSF1 as a booster to the immune system um, early in life so that you maybe don't have to give as many antibiotics? Um, and uh, so that was where the interest in that one came from. The other part of that is that the pig version of the protein spans activity across um, many of the species that would be potentially of interest. So it, it's also useful as a research tool to study multiple species um, reaction to CSF1. Um, so yeah, with being an Animal Health Institute, one of the main interests with Roslyn was let's move forward and, and try and do something in the animal health space. Okay. So where do you see the next target then for this production process? Uh, what, do you, what are you looking at now and what do you want to look at in the future in terms of uh, production or using this, using chicken egg production methods? Yeah. Um, so we have kind of moved the project now out of the Institute and into Rosen Technologies, which is a company. And the initial plan there is that we're going to sell these products as research reagents. So people do use these in research on a regular basis in small quantities. Um, and so we're hoping to put these out on the market as a very high quality product um, and kind of at a lower comparable price to, to potentially other um, proteins that, that are already out there and that people are using. And that will kind of let us develop the technology a bit further without needing to depend on grant income because um, it can be really hard to you know keep churning through the grants, especially when you're at as an advanced stage as this project has, has reached. Um, and then the hope is that we can potentially work with collaborators, maybe animal health companies, maybe small um, biotech companies to develop both animal health um, therapeutic proteins and human health therapeutic proteins. Um, and we also hope to offer a platform for custom production. So if people want proteins made um, in the oviduct system, they can come to us and, and we can work together to make those. So oviduct system is what you is the fancy name for it? Uh, yeah, sort of. I mean, it's it's. I, I tend to just call it the chicken bioreactor, but yeah. technically it's in the oviduct. And we also are hoping to develop some uh, transient expression systems. So where instead of having a permanently expressing line, we can have something that is 
expressing temporarily to make just small quantities of protein. And so if you use the same chicken to use different types? Well, we would hope to actually maybe not even use a whole chicken, but try and develop an in vitro system that would allow us to do some testing before we go all the way into making a chicken. So we could make small quantities of protein using the same type of cells from the oviduct um, without having to involve the chicken immediately. Okay. Poor chicken. No. Uh, so I can move out of the process, get out of a job. Uh, <laughs> well, for, for making the large quantities, we'll still need the chickens. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good, good. Has this, you said it's been moved into Rosin Technologies. Does that mean it's process being patented and is now being worked on privately? Uh, it's not uh, it's a, not actually a patented process. Um, like I said, this is a project that's developed over decades, yeah. and a lot of the technology that kind of went into putting it together is actually already off-patent. Um, and for us, you know, there aren't that many people who know how to make transgenic chickens and do stuff with them um so we've actually it's it's a lot based on know-how and um in future as we develop the technology further um, move into gene editing rather than using lentivirus there may be further patents that might come out in the future but for now we can pretty much rely on the fact that we've got the materials in place and we have the expertise that is very rare I'm going to ask this because people always ask me ask about gene editing. Uh, do you use CRISPR in any way in your project, or do you plan to use CRISPR? Do you we will be using CRISPR most likely um, for making new lines of chickens. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, Chris, uh, what is CRISPR? Out of interest, um, it's the bacterial immune system, uh, or is, is adapted from the bacterial immune system, which is um, a method of cutting out DNA at particular recognized sites, and you can then use that to uh, design CRISPRs against particular sites where you want to either edit, um, such as removing even or changing a single base pair, or you can also use it to completely insert a gene by just snipping the DNA and then inserting a, a repair vector in. Um, and that's what we would be doing, is um, actually doing that with um, the primordial germ cells of chickens. Uh, the Royal Institute has also developed a method of Long of extracting, uh, culturing, and long-term growth and storage of primordial germ cells from chickens. Okay. So we can do all of the modification in vitro and then inject those germ cells back into a, a host embryo and develop the line from there. So we can have complete control over the whole process. It gives you more precise control over the process, and that's why yeah. you want to move on to it. Absolutely, because with lentivirus, in addition to the potential issues around using viruses, it integrates randomly, so you have to do a lot of screening making sure, you know, finding out where that is. Whereas if you're using CRISPR, you can completely control where it goes in and it will be the same for that entire culture. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, CRISPR is certainly, I would say it's the blockchain of biology right now. So <laughs> yeah. It seems to be everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's a lovely technology. It's, uh, it's cheap, it's quick, and it's easy, which is basically the trifecta <laughs> of things you want in biology and rarely get. So <laughs> uh, This project has a lot of publicity, as we mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, how have you felt about the coverage of your project? Are there any misconceptions or anything you want to address about it? Or anything uh, you thought has been left out? So it's mostly been quite positive. Um, obviously, a lot of the media really focused on the human therapeutics angle. Uh, but, you know, that, that is quite a ways off. And there, there is one human therapeutic on the market for a rare disease that is from a transgenic chicken. Um, so the regulatory things are all in place, but... You know, we're coming out, we're an agritech company coming out of an animal health institute. So, and, and the animal health market is a little bit easier to access. So, we're mainly interested at the moment in the research market and the animal health market. Obviously, we're not going to say no to the human health market, but um, 
it's definitely not, you know, around the corner or anything. Um, one misconception, which I think we we did try really hard to to push it, but I think it didn't always make it in the sort of three, four minute coverage, was that you don't eat the eggs. There was a lot of misconceptions around that. People thinking, oh, I'm going to pop around the shops and eat these eggs with drugs in them. And, you know, that that's absolutely not the case. The, the proteins will be purified um, to a clinical standard. And most of these sorts of drugs are either injected or uh, an infusion via IV. Um, you don't eat them. Um, I think it would potentially be cool if that was if there was a possibility of an ingestible method. But proteins in general... Um, don't survive the digestive tract, so you I have to I have doubt something. They cooking. There are there are some classes of, of proteins that are a bit more robust, um, and that people are are playing with a bit of delivery methods. Um, but yeah, overall, the sorts of drugs you're looking at, they're not going to survive either cooking or digestion. Absolutely. So uh, we're coming to the end end of our in, uh, talk now. Uh, is anyone you want to thank about anyone you'd like to mention, which has helped been key part of this process, or has like been part of the innovation behind it? Yeah, absolutely. So all of this was in the lab of Professor Helen Sang in the Rosen Institute, and she's really the main driving force behind it. Um, very early in the project. Uh, one of the people who was responsible for all the design of the vectors and the promoters and all the all the bits that made it possible for the chickens to be transgenic and express the protein is Dr. Simon Lillico, who now works in gene editing of other livestock. Um, and basically everyone in the Sang lab uh, who was really helpful, especially um, Hazel Gilhuli, who's the main technician and has done a huge amount of work on this. Um, and really particular thanks to all the staff in the National Avian Research Facility in the Greenwood building. Um, without the, the animal technicians and the specialists in that building, we absolutely could not do any of this work. Um, Kelly Watson, who's the head of the NARF, um, Adrian Sherman, who's the, the manager of the transgenic side, um, and all the staff in there, um, Kim, Chris, Francis, Rona, Fiona, there's Moira, there's tons of them. Um, and they've all been really amazing in, in making this work possible. Excellent. It's, I, I love how many, how many of those names you know as well. It's quite easy to look at a paper to look at. There's a lot of people who look at the first two authors of a paper and that'll be it. And they won't realise the team behind it and the structure support they've run. Yeah. So thank you for that. Yeah. Sorry, I should probably also add the, the CSF1 proteins were... Um, is as part of a collaboration with Professor David Hume, who used to be the head of the Rolls Institute, and people from his lab, especially um, Claire Priddens. Thank you for coming today. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and it's been lovely learning about the project. So thank you very much, Lisa. Thank you. Uh, and have a lovely day. For our final piece of this episode, I would like to highlight one of the many hidden stories about the alumni of the University of Edinburgh. Today, I'll be talking about Professor Charlotte Auerbach, a German geneticist who fled the Nazis in 1933 to join the University of Edinburgh. She was known for a detailed work study of how mutations in living organisms can be caused by chemical agents, a field that is now known as chemical mutagenesis. Auerbach was born in 1899 to an educated family, with a chemist forefather and an artistic mother, she was raised in an environment that encouraged her academic studies. Despite little interest in teaching biology to women at the time, she still picked up a curiosity for the subject from the short teachings at home and at school. 
She developed this passion into a career, studying at the University of Würzburg, Berlin, and Freiburg in 1919, taking biology major and chemistry minor. Five years later, in 1924, she graduated as a secondary school teacher, but despite her focus on teaching, she did still pursue a PhD in developmental physiology with Otto Mangold. Unfortunately, Nazi party member Mangold was a difficult supervisor, with policies such as, you are my doctoral student, you have to do what I say. It is no surprise that Auerbach quickly returned to secondary school teaching after this experience. Sadly, by 1933 she was thrown out of her workplace by Nazi governmental policies, which banned Jewish employment in state schools. On the advice of her mother, Selma, and the help of family friend Herbert Freundlich, a professor of chemistry at the University of London, she was able to flee to Britain. As her father had already passed away at this point due to a heart attack, just her mother followed her in 1939 in the nick of time, on the eve of war. Once over the channel, Auerbach secured a position to continue her PhD studies at the Institute of Animal Genetics here at the University of Edinburgh, alongside Francis Crewe, the founder of medical genetics, and fellow war refugee Hermann Müller, who discovered radioactive mutations and went on to have a profound influence on Auerbach's research career. First as a PhD student, then as an assistant to Crewe from 1935 onwards, Auerbach worked to study fruit flies, or Drosophila. While cleaning the fruit fly cages after mustard gas treatment, she noted the effect the gas was having on her own skin including septic fingers and rashes. Further observations led her to publish a classified paper on how mustard gas caused mutations in fruit flies, alongside John Robson. Access to this paper was restricted due to its sensitive nature as part of military research during World War II, and was not widely shared until 1947. This was the same year she received her DSC Doctorate of Science for a contribution to research from the University of Edinburgh. As Auerbach went on to achieve international esteem in her field, things came full circle when she was offered a professorship in Germany. She declined this, however, and instead became an emeritus professor at the University of Edinburgh in 1969. She stayed here for the rest of her life, eventually passing away in 1994. In her time at Edinburgh, she earned international distinction for scientific achievement, had the admiration and respect of her working fellows, and overcame a racist, fascist regime. Clearly, Charlotte Auerbach is an alumna and legacy worth remembering. Thank you for listening to Biopod. If you're interested in the scientific detail behind Dr. Lisa Heron's work, or if you want to hear more about Professor Charlotte Erbeck's life and research, please check out our Twitter and our website, where you can access bonus content to our extended interviews and links to all our references in the episode. Thank you for listening, 